So we will be in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. We have a lot to cover today. I'm going to give you a message from a Christmas message. We're going to go through the entire chapter of Luke 40, including all the history of Israel. And we're going to conclude with the end of Isaiah 40, which is where I'm actually going to start. So in the midst of all that, we're also going to play a game called Connect the Dots. I don't know if any of you have ever played Connect the Dots. Usually it's a picture in dot form, and they're, they're numbered, and you have to follow the numbers through, and it draws a picture. There's also a higher intellect version where it's just a paper filled with dots, and it has a starting dot. Then you're given north, south, east, west, right, left, whatever, one dot, two dot, three dots, and you have to figure out how it goes following the directions. That's more of what we're going to do today, but we're going to do it through the Bible. When I started out with this passage, I was preparing to do a insane, crazy, ridiculous event. Um, Ryan asked me to help him with a run that he was going to do. It is a ultra marathon. It's a 100-mile run through the trails and the mountains of West Virginia. He said, Dad, it's going to be great. Why don't you come? You can run a section with me. And I foolishly said, okay. So I prepared and trained and trained. And all through that process, this one verse that we're going to be looking at today, chapter 40, verse, 30, verse 31, kept running through my mind. We're going to read it, and I'll share it with you shortly. While I was there at the event, I heard other people quote this verse, which I thought was odd. And I got more and more frustrated because it's taken out of context. And then I got home, and I saw a professional athlete with it emblazoned on his hat. His key verse for life. I'm like, it's out of context. So I decided I had to look at the context to make sure that it is out of context. And sure enough, it's out of context. So we're going to start with verse 31. We're going to go back to verse 1. I'll have a Christmas message for you, which is like crazy how it fits in. Then we're going to work our way through the chapter. As we work our way through the chapter, we are going to find significant themes running through this chapter, themes that I have spoken about, that Andrew has spoken about, and Steve has spoken about over and over and over and over and over and over again, themes that you're all familiar with, and they're going to jump out through this text. So before we get into it, I need to get everybody somewhat on the same page with some of these themes. So this is one of the interactive parts of today's message. What are some of the themes that Steve, Andrew, or I have been preaching and teaching for the last 10, 15 years? Like a main theme of the Bible would be what? Repentance. Repentance? It's a good one. Who is this Christ and why is he worthy of our worship? Yeah, we're going to hit that one hard here in Isaiah. Anything else? Redemption. Old Testament, I'm looking forward to redemption to come. Anything else? Our attempt to glorify God, and do we succeed? Not usually. Whew, not usually. Anything else? Always point towards Christ and our need for Christ, that we fall drastically short, tying, tying to end with what Tom was saying. We fall short in our, in our goal to glorify God. Glorify God. Anything else? Any other themes? Kingdom of God. In our best state, we are not good. We cannot earn it. Exactly. What's that? Power of the Holy Spirit, power of God, the sovereignty of God. Anything else? a lot of them. Uh, I think pretty much every one of those you're going to see in this chapter. It's crazy. I was reading through it and I was sharing with Steve, this is here, this is here, this is here, this is here. Last week he like preached my message. I told him, Steve, stop preaching my message. He's like, sorry, sorry, you know, it's the text. I just got to follow the text. So then I logged in Wednesday night. I caught the last half of Wednesday night. First five words he said were right from this chapter. I'm like, Steve, stop preaching my message. <laughs> but it's the text he was in. He was in uh, was it Second Peter Wednesday night, was it? So, Isaiah, chapter 40. 
verse 31. Let's, hope, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into this. Father, I thank you for today, and in some strange way, I thank you that Steve can't be here. It gives me the opportunity to share what you put on my heart. And Father, most of all, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word, that it would not be, it would not be my word, it would not be Steve's word or Andrew's word or whoever else may have been filling in that day or messages we've heard on the radio, but Father, that it would be your word and your glory that, as we already mentioned, we would strive to glorify you as we look at this text, as we review our own lives in light of this text, that we would truly walk away here being amazed at who you are, that we would see Christ in more of his glory and be amazed and full of worship for who this Christ is. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Great verse if you're going to go for a 100-mile run because you don't want to get tired. Uh, guess what? Have any of you ever ran anything? bathroom or to the refrigerator, you get tired. But this is a life verse that a lot of these runners were using, it's a 100-mile run. I can do this without getting tired. Professional athlete, it's on his hat, wears a hat with a special logo on it. I can play football all day and not get tired. Is that what this verse is saying? If you're a believer, can you do these things without getting tired? Now, if you were paying attention, you notice I skipped a word when I read the verse. King James or ESV starts with but, NAS, uh, NASB starts with yet, same concept, but. But is a connection. It's a connection and a contrast. It's saying there's a distinction from what precedes it to what comes after it. And that's about all I know about grammar. But Steve has taught us there's contrast that we can learn from, compare and contrast, right? So something comes before verse 31 that we need to understand before we can rightly apply this verse. So, that's your verse for running? <laughs> so, we're going to jump all the way back to verse 1, and now comes the Christmas message. Pay attention. Chapter 40, verse 1 of Isaiah. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. That is my Christmas message for today. Last week we sang the song, and uh, no, I just lost the blank. Ah. Uh, no, it has comfort and joy. Lost the, God rest you, merry gentlemen. I had three wise men. Anyway, God rest you, merry gentlemen. Comfort and joy. What is the comfort that's being talked about here? To understand, we need to put in context Isaiah chapter 40. So, basic math. What would come before Isaiah chapter 40? Isaiah chapter 39. So Isaiah chapter 1 through Isaiah chapter 39, the book of Isaiah is split basically in two parts, 39 and earlier and 40 and later. Chapters 1 through 39 is all about God judging Israel, warning Israel, putting Israel in captivity. It's just bad. Israel was in a bad spot. And Isaiah comes along and says, you need to repent. You need to repent. God's judgment is coming. God is going to judge you. And everybody said, yeah, whatever. And the Assyrians came, and it was nasty. Some of Isaiah's prophecies were immediate. Some of them were yet to come in his time period. At the end of chapter 39, Hezekiah is king, and the, let me get them right, I think the Assyrians had taken captivity of him, but their power was weakening, and Isaiah says, relax, the Assyrians aren't going to rule you forever. It's going to get better. Babylon's coming. Babylon's going to take us away into captivity, and it will be worse than you can possibly imagine. When you get a chance, read uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations, and you'll see what it was like during the Babylonian captivity. Women were eating their children to stay alive. They were killing each other over a dead horse in the street just to have something to eat. It was bad. Isaiah ends chapter 39 with that warning of what's about to come. Chapter 40 starts with, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Huge contrast. What could this comfort possibly be? By the way, you're all about to die out of God's judgment. Comfort. Relax. 
Is he putting his arm around their shoulders saying, hey, it's going to be all better? No. No, it doesn't fit with the context. So what is that comfort talking about? Give you a hint. Coming up in a couple weeks, we're going to celebrate it. Christ is coming. God made a promise. All through the previous chapters, before Isaiah's time, all the way back to Genesis, God made a promise, a very specific promise. We already talked about it. Redemption, the Redeemer is coming. God keeps his promises. The, the promise is coming. It's coming. That's the comfort he's talking about here. Jesus is coming. So when we celebrate Christmas, do we get caught up with the tradition? Color lights, Christmas trees, manger scene, a little baby. Is that what Christmas is about? I asked Tom to read chapter 2 of Luke, 8 through 14. Talks about a baby being born, but as a sign. And how did the angels respond in verse 14? The shepherds were fearful. How were the angels responding? Remember? A heavenly host praising God at the top of their lungs. Glory to God in the highest. Were the heavens a silent night? No. No. A host of heavenly angels were screaming, God's keeping his promise. The promise is here. Right back to Isaiah 40, chapter 1. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. The Messiah will come. Verse 2. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. What a shift. Do you see this transition? All the doom and gloom from the previous 39 chapters. By the way, you're going to be taken into captivity. It's going to be horrible. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. And call out to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let's stop there for a moment. How can she possibly receive double for all her sins? We already said we can't pay for them. We're sinners. How could this judgment on Israel pay double for all her sins? It can't. The picture that he's trying to get to us, and it's the breakdown in language, is more like if you have a mirror and an image, whether it's your face or a picture or whatever you're looking that image. The picture here is that salvation will come and it will match your sin. It will be a double for your sin. It will cover, it will cancel, it will eradicate your sin. Your sin will be no more. What's coming, the double, will more than satisfy that. So what could that possibly be? What could be that double, that cover? Christ and Christ alone. So he says, uh, let me back up to verse 2 again. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has, has ended, her iniquity has been removed, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Tying back into verse 1, Christ is coming. He's going to take care of your sins. It has not been eradicated simply because you've been in captivity and under judgment. It still needs to be dealt with. Verse 3. By the way, if you look on the back of your bulletin, it's the same verse. Oops, back by the bulletin. Same verse down at the bottom. How did that happen? It wasn't me. Verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Stop there for a moment. Does that sound familiar? Anybody that was here last week? What were we talking about last week? Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, John the Baptist. Remember, Paul was making references to John the Baptist, that the repentance, that the baptism they had in John was incomplete. Do you remember that? And there was a specific word that Steve had used to say how incomplete the gospel was. 
is a great word. I even texted him this morning, so I have it in my phone, but I left my phone back there, and I forget the word now. Uh, truncated. Is it truncated gospel? Remember the key element was missing? So why does he tie this concept of John the Baptist coming, a truncated gospel, in with Isaiah chapter 40? What's the connection? Connecting dots. John the Baptist will prepare the way for Christ. By the way, had Israel truncated the gospel up until this point? Were their sacrifices being eagerly accepted by God at this point? No, they were missing a key element. It points to Christ and something greater. They had truncated the gospel. Just like Paul was dealing with, with was it Ephesians, the people in Ephesus, in chapter 19 of Acts, where they had truncated the gospel, same problem. And he brings what will happen with John the Baptist in here. And verse 5, summing up what John the Baptist was going to be doing, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is the glory? Christ. And how do we know that's going to happen the end of verse 5? The Lord said it. The Lord said it. The end. Do we need any other proof? God said it. The end. Right? You tracking with me? God said it will happen. God is sovereign. The Holy Spirit is powerful. Christ is the authority. It's all coming through here. Things that we're kind of talking about, these themes, they're all here. One of the themes we did not mention was three offices that Christ will hold. Do you remember what they are? Prophet, priest, and king. What does a prophet do? He foretells the word of God. This is what God says. Thus saith the Lord. What does a priest do? He's a mediator. He represents us. Right? He performs the sacrifice. In Christ's case, he becomes the sacrifice. And what does the king do? He rules. See if you pick up on any of that through this passage. Crazy how they're all here. Uh, verse 6. A voice says, call out. Is that a prophet speaking the word? Yeah. Call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands, how long? Forever. Does this sound like any passages that we know of in the New Testament? I think Jesus kind of said this. Flowers are well, they're dressed with Solomon, all his glory, right? Thrown into the oven. And here Isaiah is saying, what's like grass? We are. Don't think more highly of yourself than what God thinks of you. We're grass. Did anybody think of the grass when they were walking around outside today? Grass. Just grass. Hmm. And yet he sends the Redeemer for that grass. Kind of crazy, isn't it? He's going to come back to this concept here from verses 6 through 8 shortly. But as the grass fades and is forgotten, the word of the Lord stands forever. By the way, we just had an election. I think it's over. Don't know. Don't know what your political position is. Really don't care. Don't want to hear any political arguments about it. Don't know if your candidate won or lost. You're irrelevant. What does God say about your political candidate here? He's a blade of grass. Just a blade of grass. Verse 9. By the way, as we're going through these, uh, this middle section, if one of these themes jumps out at you that we talked about or another one pops into your head, raise your hand let me know. There, there's so many things that tie in through here. Verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily. What are we supposed to do? Lift our voice mightily? 
Does that sound like what Paul was doing in the synagogue? Yeah. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. The words are coming out. Is this how we celebrate Christmas? Hmm. Verse 9 again. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. We're not just shouting. We're shouting good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. What should our testimonies be? Is it about all the things I did? What Christ did for us. Here is your God. And then he goes on to explain about this God. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who does this sound like? Christ the good shepherd. Does he sound like a victorious king here? Yeah. He sounds like a kind, loving, gentle, humble shepherd. Just out caring for his sheep. Just doing the, what he has to to survive. And then he goes on with verse 12. Now this, in my mind, this simply reflects Job. When Job and God had this little argument at the end of the book of Job. And God's like, really? Well, where were you? And then God just spews all this stuff on Job. It completely undoes, undoes Job. He starts with verse 12. <clears throat> Who has measured the hollow, excuse me, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? How much water is there in the earth? A lot. Can you be more specific? Uh, yeah, it's like the largest percentage water. Can you, how much of it can you hold in your hand? I mean, hold in your hand and carry around and say, look, this is X amount of water. Can you keep it in your hand? It just, it's gone. What does it say God does? He measures it in his hand. Some of the water, all the water, just a couple drops of water, all, all the water. He measures it with his hand. Does that sound like an all-powerful God? Hmm. He marked off the heavens by the span. Do you know how big a span is? Technically, it's half a cubit. Doesn't help me any. It's about thumb to pinky tip. Yeah, it's about a span. Okay? What does it say God does? Marked off the heavens by that much. That's how significant the host of heavens is and all the stars. God says, yeah, it's about like that. All the heavens within the span. He calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. How do you measure dust? Are you sure you got it all and didn't miss a piece? God measures all the dust of the earth. And what did he call us? Yeah, God measures the dust. He weighed the mountains in a balance. Why would you weigh the mountains? God did. Weigh them in a balance. Make sure they're the right size. It wasn't just a geographic, geographical, geological. It wasn't just a geological force that pushed this up. God measured them to make sure they were exactly right. And the hills he balanced in a pair of scales. So there's a definite difference between hills and mountains and the hills. Okay, I want to balance them, make sure they're right. I, is this for us, for our benefit, or for God's glory? Yeah, God's glory. 
Jim, I'm glad you said about the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who tells the Spirit what to do? Spirit goes where he wishes. Can't stop him. Can't direct him. Can't turn him. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him. You ever try and tell God what to do? Yeah, good luck. Good luck. Hmm. With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And informed him in the way of understanding? Have you been treated wrongly? Not fair? Did you ever tell God how unfair your life is? Yeah, God says he understands justice. We don't. He knows what fair is. We don't. By the way, before we get past this, I want to thank all of you who have been praying for me with the kidney stone and the pain. The stone is gone. There is no more pain. Um, there, I think there's three or four more stones in there that may or may not move. So we'll have to deal with those when time comes. It has been a uh, painful year. I've had a number of back issues and hernia and kidney stones. And I have learned a lot from pain. There is a, I forget his name, one of those ultra crazy runner guys has said, make friends with pain and you'll never be alone. I've had a crowded life the past couple months, but I've learned a lot. Some of it I'll share with you when we get to communion. But pain is there for a reason. Not just to inflict pain because God wants us to hurt. It's there for a reason. He gives us pain for a reason. At some point, I thought it wasn't fair that I had that much pain. And I was brought to this verse. Who am I to decide what's fair? At the end of the day, it's just pain. Right? Pain goes away eventually. Verse 15, before we get into that, I want to go back on a little political kick. A little scare tactic. I understand that some of the nuclear arms treaties are about to expire this year and all have to be renegotiated. There have been a number of the countries that said we will not renegotiate those, like Korea, for example, North Korea, that they do not want to be involved in that and some of the other renegade countries. I also heard that the United States shot down an incoming uh, ballistic missile, uh, ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile, that was launched from over near North Korea. One of their ships shot it down with new technology before it had reached Hawaii. Kind of scary, isn't it? By the way, it was a dummy. The US launched it from the Philippines. They did not let the captain of the US ship know that it was a dummy. So it was a real live experience to them and they shot it down just as they were supposed to. So everybody say yay to US technology. On the other hand, that lack of US technology was the only thing that was keeping the crazies from launching the nuclear warheads. Because if I launch at Charles, what's Charles gonna do in response? He's gonna launch back at me. But now that I know Charles has technology to shoot down some of my missiles, well maybe I can sneak one or two through because now he's gonna depend on that defense instead of relaunching. So on one hand, Ooh, to U.S. technology, because the floodgates may have just opened up to more terrorist accounts. Don't know. With the political change that's happening, nobody knows how the balance is going to swing. Am I scaring you? Is your future uncertain at this point? Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. How annoying is one drop from a bucket? How much do you lose when you have a five-gallon bucket full of water and you lose one drop? Does it make a difference in anything that you're doing? No. Try carrying a full, gallon of, full bucket of water without spilling any. It's, it's, you can hardly do it. Drop in a bucket. God said the nations, not one, the nations, drop in a bucket. I'm not even worried about it. Continue on. They're regarded as a what? Speck of dust. Talk about your nuclear arms treaty. God says, we don't need it. I'm in control. God is in control. All that is like a speck of dust. Behold, he, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. 
huge islands. God lifts them up like it's just dust. Is God powerful? Is God in control? Is God sovereign? Do you see him belaboring this point, driving it home again and again and again? I hope you're picking up on it. Verse 16, even Lebanon is not enough to burn. Are you familiar with the cedars of Lebanon? Solomon went there to get wood for the temple. Uh, Nehemiah, I believe it was, had letters from Cyrus, I think, or whoever the king was, to get cedars from Lebanon to help rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. It was huge. It's world famous. Even if you look at the Lebanon flag today, there's a cedar tree in the middle of it. The cedars of Lebanon is a huge forest. It's been, most of it's been decimated over time. It's a huge forest that was famous for how big the trees were, how great the trees were. And here he's saying, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. In other words, all the sacrifices that you could burn on all the wood out of the forests of Lebanon and sacrifice all those animals, God would still not be satisfied with that sacrifice. What is the only thing that can satisfy him? Christ, back to being the priest. Again, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So the scare tactic, do you feel a little more comfortable now? Who's in control? Is it the new, newly elected or future newly elected government that we may have? Is it the current government that's going out? Is it the international governments? Is it all these treaties or is it God? It's God. Oh, by the way, there's a little germ out there, COVID, a little germ. Who's in control of that? God. Does that mean we shouldn't be responsible? I'm not saying that. But God is in ultimate control. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman crafts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, but seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter, will not fall over. Do you see the comparison between our idols and God? Do you see that distinction he's drawing there? Israel at the time was deep in idol worship, physical idols. And he is drawing a huge comparison between them. You, you need a skillful guy. You make sure you hire the best because it's, it's going to fall over. It's, it's going to fall over. I have a Christmas tree I set up outside. Put colored lights on it. It's my back patio. It got windy. Guess what it did? Blew over. Got to go out and fix it, reshape everything, tie it down better. It's not an idol, but if it were, it just blew over. Little breeze. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. Your gods are nothing. A breeze will blow it over. Nothing compared to the almighty God. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? By the way, has Steve been preaching at our church very long? Do we believe he's preaching truth? Week in, week out, the scripture? So am, am I sharing anything new with anybody? It's pretty much the same thing Steve has been saying. I've been saying it over the years. Andrew's been preaching on it. Other people that have filled in from time to time. Same thing. Nothing new. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, and he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Even the insects, pointless, worthless grasshoppers, God spreads them out and says, hey, look, I can make a tent out of these. There's a purpose to them. They're not just to annoy us not just to eat our crops. God controls them. They have a purpose. Verse 23, he it is who reduces rulers to what? Nothing. Who makes the judges of the earth, what? 
meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely does what? Blows on them. And they wither. And the storm carries them away like rubble. How powerful is God compared to the rulers of our world? Is there any comparison? He simply blows. He simply blows on them. That's it. Back in context, what was happening at the time with Isaiah and Israel? They were under the authority of a foreign country, the Assyrians. Time frame, it was about 700 B.C. At about 586 B.C. is when Babylon comes in. So about 100 years later, they're going to be taken away into captivity. Nasty, nasty, nasty time under the rule of foreign countries, foreign leaders. They could not practice their religion on their own. They were under the authority of another country. Does it sound anything at all like our Christmas time period with Jesus being born with Roman rule and being occupied? And what does he say here about those rulers? He simply breathes and they go away. And yet Jesus succumbed to them, submitted, allowed them. It's interesting. That would be a series, message series all on its own. Verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be the, his equal, says the Holy One. Would we even consider putting anyone on an equal plane with God? I mean, really, would we even consider it? Obviously, the answer is, yeah, we do it all the time. We don't want to admit it, but we do it all the time. My time is more important than God's time. My bank account is more important than God's account. My pleasures in life are more important than what God has for me. You know, what I want is more important than what my spouse wants. We've got a long list, don't we? So we can't look at this text and say, oh, stupid Israel, because Israel is a picture of us. We do the exact same thing. We just do it a little different. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. That was one thing I noticed when I was with Ryan down in West Virginia. Katie and I had the opportunity to meet Ryan at about, well, originally we were supposed to meet him at 4.30 a.m. He got there a little late, um, had some issues happening. Stars. Didn't have all the ambient light that we had. We were out in the wilderness. Just beautiful stars. Like, never saw all these stars before. Always knew they were there, but you couldn't see them. I remember looking up at the stars thinking, God knows every one of them. It's not just that he created them and put them out there. He knows them. He has a name for them all. It says here that he is the one who leads forth their host by number. He leads them and calls them all by name. Does that sound like an intimate knowledge of the stars? And said earlier, we're grass. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So, try to comprehend how many stars there are. We had a five-gallon bucket and filled it with sand. How many grains of sand would it be? Would you be able to name them all and distinguish each one just in a five-gallon bucket? I'm not talking the host of stars. This is one five-gallon bucket. How about a gallon-sized bucket? How about Jim's water bottle full of sand? If we filled that with sand, could you identify the different grains and spread them out on the table and say, oh, this is Joseph's sand, I don't know, whatever the name would be. Would you be able to identify it and guide it and direct it to any of them? Sand is sand. But he says here he knows them all by name. 
and he leads them, and he calls them. And not only that, not one goes missing. Do you ever go to the beach? Do you ever bring some sand, <coughs> excuse me, some sand home with you? Your shoes and your car everywhere? It goes missing from the beach because it's stuck with you somehow. The stars aren't that way. God knows every one of them. They don't go missing. They all have their perfect orbit. He guides them. He directs them. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? Remember, Israel was divided at this point. My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. What is he saying here that we say as Jacob and Israel? What is he accusing us of? Being our own God. Well, God doesn't see me. God doesn't care. God's okay if I don't report this on my taxes. God's okay if I watch this on the internet. God's okay if I hang with these people and do this. I mean, if God didn't want me to, he wouldn't let me, right? I mean, he would have stopped me somehow. But what does it say here? What does the context tell us so far? Does God know exactly what we're doing all the time? Yes. Are we violating his relationship with him and his law? Yes. Verse 27 again. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? He directs the stars. He guides every king, every ruler, every thought. You don't think he knows what we're doing? Verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He knows. He has the power. He is in control. He's not taking a nap. He's not separate. He's not on vacation. He's not unreachable. He didn't turn his ringer off. His number has not been disconnected. Verse 29. He gives strength to who? The weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases what? So what is he telling us here in context with the previous whole entirety of the chapter? Who should we not put our hope and trust in? Ourselves, the powerful, the leaders, the ones who we think have control and the power. Because God is going to raise up somebody that we couldn't even imagine that has absolutely no power, nothing in their own, and God is going to use them to rule and change and lead and guide. And it may even be a baby born in a manger to an unwed mother who will be our redeemer. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 30. Though youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. Who are the youth and who are the vigorous young men? What do you think? He's been. What's that? Say it again. People running in West Virginia. Who else? Maybe us. Context. What's happening in Israel? What's that? They're being captured. So what do they not have protecting them anymore? Soldiers, army, trained defenses. What's he saying here? The youths grow weary and tired. The vigorous young men stumble badly. Don't put your hope in them. They're not going to save you. We know that if we read the Old Testament, right? Remember Gideon? How much fighting did his men do? He took 300 men and defeated the host of the Midianites. Was it because they were brave, valor, strong, great men? How about David and Goliath? Was it because he was such a strong warrior that David overwhelmed them? No. Verse 31. Yet, or but, depending on your translation, contrast these powerful people who are failing, these specks of dust, these drops in a bucket, these 
blades of grass who are going to die, who God just simply blows on and they blow over. Yet, compared to those, those who wait for the Lord. What does that term mean? What does waiting for the Lord mean? Waiting for his return, having faith. Yeah, the context of what he's talking about. Realizing who we are in light of who God is. We mentioned it earlier, I think Ken may have mentioned it, that we were nothing, we need the Redeemer. We can do nothing on our own. We're hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. We can do nothing. By the way, Babylon is coming. Babylon is going to come and take you away and it's going to be horrible. Can't stop it. Comfort. Comfort. God's in control. Messiah's coming. May not be today. May not be tomorrow. It's in God's perfect timing. Messiah's coming. Verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord, who put their trust in the Lord, who believe what God has already said. Remember, you've already heard. You've already understood these. He says that repeatedly through here. They will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Does it mean they're going to do a 100-mile run and not be tired? No, that's not what he's talking about. What's he talking about? In context, waiting on the Lord. What's going to happen to these people who truly wait on the Lord? Persevere. They will persevere how far? To the, to the end. They will persevere to the end, to whatever that end point is. Back to the kidney stone. Don't know how well-versed everybody is in kidney stones. Most people don't have a clue. I didn't until I started getting them. The stone breaks off inside the kidney. It's basically deposits that have not been filtered through the normal process because we drink things that we shouldn't be drinking. Primarily, Jim, iced tea is the number one culprit. It leaves deposits in your kidney that don't get filtered through properly for whatever reason. Mine is probably more genetic than anything else. Sorry, guys. The deposits build up, they form a stone typically, there's various reasons, but typically form a stone. At whatever point it breaks off from inside your kidney, goes into a tube called the ureter, which goes from your kidney to your bladder. The ureter does all these squiggly things, working its way around veins and tubes and bones and muscles and whatever else is all through there. At some points that stone may have jagged edges, it may get caught. And just like sticking your finger in a balloon, won't pass anything. When the end of the ureter inflates because the kidney keeps saying, got to pump the urine, got to pump the urine, got to pump the urine. I'm not using voices like I did for you, apparently. <clears throat> when I got out of the hospital, I was on medication. I was apparently using voices for all this. So I don't know. Anyway, that ureter inflates just like a balloon and puts pressure and causes some significant discomfort. Okay? Once the pressure builds up enough, guess what happens to that stone? Shoots out to the next point where it gets stuck. And you're like, oh, that feels better. Oh, no, it doesn't. Next day, pain's there. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's better. Varies everybody all the time. Point is, that tube has the most narrow point at the bladder. Crazy. After it does all this, the very last spot is supposedly the most painful. Crazy. So I went to see the doctor, and he said, it's going to be bad, dude. This is a good-sized stone. It's going to be bad. You think it's bad now? He said, I had a priest in here who I told him, you're going to be cursing God. He's like, no, 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 no. Priest came back after the stone finally passed, and he goes, I have to admit and confess, I cursed God. I cursed the Virgin Mary. I cursed Paul. I cursed Satan. I cursed everybody I could find. You were right, Doc. For whatever reason, I never felt mine. Don't know. But it passed. I know it passed. Anyway, my point is, going back to the text, I had to persevere. I had to persevere. I could stop any time through the process, and there's medical procedures they could do to get that stone out. All kinds of bad stories. We don't want to go there. It's not the point of the text. The point is I had to persevere. And right at the end, once that stone goes into the bladder, you are pain-free. The rest of the trip is painless. But that point at the end is by far typically the worst. We need to persevere. Isaiah is telling these people, 
you think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. Our only hope is in the Lord and persevering in the Lord. For those of you who are believers, those who are waiting on the Lord, persevere. Trust. Messiah's coming. God keeps his promise. His word back in uh, was that verse 8. But the word of our Lord stands forever. It's the only thing we can count on. Flowers fade. God breathes on them and they're gone. Kingdoms. God's simple. They're nothing. God breathes and they go away. They're nothing. The captivity that he's talking about, temporary. It's temporary. Compared to eternity, it's temporary. Persevere. Endure. Comfort. Comfort my people. There is hope if you're with God. Verse 31 again. Try to keep this in context. In context. But those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This is talking about ministry, guys. I'm not saying Steve, as our official pastor minister, does not get tired. It's not what it's saying. That's out of context. It's saying endure ministry. Did Paul endure much through the book of Acts so far? Yeah. Is he going to endure a lot more? Yeah. Anything compared to what we endure? Nope. How many of you have been stoned? By rocks. <laughs> yeah. How many of you have been stoned by rocks to the point of death? Possibly. Some debate with Paul whether he was dead and came back to life or not. Don't know. Maybe Steve will get into that. Maybe he won't. Shipwrecked, bitten by a viper, should have been dead multiple times, thrown in prison, beaten. Has anybody been thrown in prison and beaten for their belief? Yeah, I don't think so. Hmm. Walk and not become weary. What did Paul do when he was in prison? Praising God. Guess what I was doing when I had my kidney stones and I'm rolling on the floor in pain because you can't find relief. It doesn't matter. I mean, sometimes your back goes, if, you know, if I stand like this, the back doesn't hurt so bad. So you do crazy things or you sprain your ankle. And if I just walk funny, like when you break your ankle, if you can get the weight off of it, it doesn't hurt as bad. Guess what with a kidney stone? It doesn't matter what you do. It hurts. I was in the hospital, finally got into the, back into the, the room. And the nurse said, hey, I saw you out in the lobby. You were doing the kidney stone dance. Is that why you're here? I'm like, yeah. And then I was on the floor trying to find a comfortable spot, crawling around the floor of a hospital. Pain. Well, guess what? Don't grow weary in your ministry. Endure. Endure to the end. <clears throat> we're going to back up to verse 28 again. We're going to segue into communion after we get through this section just to give guys an idea of what's happening here. Keep the context. Keep the pain. There's an expression with runners, these ultra runners, that there's a point in the race where you enter what's called the pain cave. And to get through that pain cave, you need to have an answer to one huge question. And that question consists of three letters, W-H-Y. Why in the world are you doing this? It hurts. It's pain. You could stop at any time. The crazy thing about these runners, all they have to do is say, I'm done. And the pain stops. Well, eventually. The pain will stop. But they keep going saying, oh, no, there's more pain. There's more pain. There's more And they keep going because they have a Why? They have a reason they're doing it. And it's different for everybody all the time. Um, some of them can't even answer the why until they hit that moment. You need to look up YouTube, 100-mile runs and stuff. They answer a lot of these questions. It's crazy what some of these guys do. But this pain cave, once they come up with their why, they're motivated to come out the other side of this pain cave, and they run like there's nothing wrong. I watched one of the elite runners hit the pain cave at mile 40. He is laying on the road, laying out on the road. One of the other, and there's a guy that videotapes them because they make these documentary things. Another guy comes along and says, dude, what are you doing? I'm done. What do you mean you're done? 
Can't move. She's like, you're kidding me? Get up. Come on, aid station, over the hill. Let's go. No, man, I soiled myself. I hurt. I, I'm done. And the guy said, you know, I used to respect you as a runner. You lay there, I have no respect for you. You used to be an ambassador for running. That's gone. You're done. Your family is waiting for you at the aid station. Are you going to disappoint them with all the sacrifice they've made to get you here? Are you going to lay here because you soiled yourself? Dude, we've all done that. We've all had pain. Get up. He helps him up, and then he runs. Guess what happened about an hour later? They showed a video of him. He was running six-minute miles like nothing ever happened. He had to be reminded of his why. Coming back to the text, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Have you not heard, did you not know? Am I not just repeating things you already know? Am I not just reminding you like the runner did to the guy laying on the road? What is our why? We need to be reminded what our why is. Our why is right here. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He has a plan. He is working his plan. He will work his plan to the end. It is a perfect plan. It is for his children's good and his glory. It's a perfect plan. Don't grow tired in it. Back to verse 8. But the word of our Lord stands forever. It will not fail. It is the only thing we can depend on. It is the only thing we can count on. So if I could have the music team come up, the guys who are going to help with communion. A few more points on this text as we pass out the communion. So I need to ask you, what is your why? So one day, I went to work. The pain wasn't real bad. Came home. Pain started to increase. I'm laying on the floor, just laying flat on the floor, trying to let the pain subside some way, thinking. I knew I wanted to preach this text, reviewing some of the verses through my head, and the pain just, they always ask on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you at? Like the 10 being, you're dead. A one, you can't even feel. So where are you at? And everybody wants to say, well, it's about a nine and a half, right? I, that's not how I tick. I was always like a seven. An eight is like the worst I could ever experience because I think at a nine, I'm probably going to pass out. A 10, I'm never going to feel. So my worst is probably like a seven or an eight. So I was down at like a four. It was like uncomfortable, like enough where you really can't focus on the work that you want to do. Too distracting. I remember laying there. The pain was starting to subside a little bit. And I'm thinking through these pain gradients. Where am I right now? Am I a four? Maybe this is a 12 because it's, oh, it's really uncomfortable. No, I can't go above 10. Where is it? Well, what would be the worst pain that I could imagine? And I remember watching old Western movies where they would tie the bad guy, one arm to one horse, one arm to another, one leg to another horse, one to another. And then the Indians would shout or they'd shoot a gun or something. The horses would all run a different direction. So yeah, that's pretty painful. I don't want to go that way. Then I watch movies like Star Wars, and you see Anakin and Obi-Wan have their lightsaber duel, and Anakin falls in the lava, and he crawls out, and his legs are all burned off, and it's drastic, and I'm like, ooh, burns. I've had burns. Ooh, they are bad. I ooh, don't want to go that way. That's painful. Ooh, maybe that's a 10. And then I had a reality smack. They had this device called a cross. Tons of people were hung on a cross. And they would strap the guy's arm down with a rope or a leather strap. Sometimes they would even drive a nail through it, big spike. One hand, then the other, and the feet. They'd beat them, 
and hang him up. And the person ends up suffocating to death. Now, of course, we know Jesus, that happened to Jesus, right? Don't want to minimize this. But it happened to lots of people. It was relatively common. And that's, that's pretty painful. I, I, no, I don't want to go that way. No way. That, that's got to be a 10. And then I'm thinking through, you know, the thieves on the cross, can't say that they deserved it, but in the punishment of the day, that was their punishment. I wonder how many other people, obviously Jesus was innocent completely, but how many other people were tried incorrectly and were crucified for a crime they didn't do? And we know our justice system today isn't perfect, right? So it wasn't perfect back then. But how many people, mistaken identity, were lied about, deceived, were just crucified the wrong person. Can you imagine being crucified when it wasn't you? When Charles did something, and because Charles and I looked so much alike, they thought it was me? Okay, well, we don't look alike. But you get the idea. What if it was just a mistaken identity? I mean, you knew you weren't really the greatest person in the world, but can you imagine being crucified just because of mistaken identity? And then, of course, you have to go to Jesus. He didn't do anything wrong. He's God. And yet he knew the outcome from his before his birth. He knew what was going to happen. He knew why he was there. And look at his life through the Gospels. You don't see him backing down at all. You don't see him tapping out saying, I'm done. Rusty isn't worth this. He's just a blade of grass. And yet in this text, this is what we're seeing that we're called to do. Not tapping out, not quitting, persevering. As Steve went over it last week, the angels, or maybe it was Wednesday night, the angels are even watching saying, this is what salvation looks like. This is what redemption looks like. The angels are learning by watching us. Our neighbors are watching us, our family, coworkers, whatever. Are we tapping out? Are we truncating the gospel? Because it hurts. So as we pass out communion today, I want you to examine your own life, whatever pain you may or may not have had in your life, Think of whatever pain you can conjure up that Jesus went through physical pain, just the physical pain, hanging on that cross. Will we endure to the end? I don't know. When you try to get your head around that, start thinking through the psychological pain. Knowing that you're being hung up there, but it's not your fault. How much fighting and screaming and the, just the physical, the mental, the psychological torment would you go through knowing it was not your fault? They have the wrong guy. And you're going through that. And then go to Jesus, who dealt with all that, but he also dealt with the spiritual side. He's taken my sin. And how did God respond to Jesus hanging on the cross? Remember, they were one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What did God do when Jesus was hanging on the cross? Turned his face away. Talk about spiritual pain. We just went through the entire chapter. Hope, 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 hope. Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. Here's Messiah. He's hanging on the tree, and God the Father turns his face away from him. So let me ask you, in light of the text, in light of our sin, God is still watching. God knows everything you're doing. You're not doing it in secret. You're not doing it in hiding. You're not doing it where nobody can see you. God knows, and Jesus hung on that cross for that sin that you're trying to hide. Go ahead, guys. While the guys are passing it out, I want to pray. Musicians can start. Father, I thank you for today. Thank you for this text.
thank you for reminding us that you love your own. You have called your own and you're working a plan. Thank you, Father. Back to Isaiah 27. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? In other words, why do you say, O men and women, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. God does notice our injustices. He does notice our sin. It does not escape him. And if you are God's chosen, he put it on Jesus. So as we take together, remember and weep over your sin, but also remember that Christ has paid for it and rejoice. Let's take together.